Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Hello and welcome to this special recording of Ukraine The Latest. My name is David Knowles and we are very honoured to be here in the Ukrainian capital city of Kiev for this recording, marking the anniversary of the full-scale invasion, two years at war for Ukraine. Honoured to be joined here by my colleagues, Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley. And we're hugely honoured to have with us Alexandra Matvichuk, Head of the Centre for Civil Liberties, Human Rights Lawyer and winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Let's start then, I think, by looking back over the past two years and just trying to summarise your thoughts. I'd like to hear from all of you on where we are at the current moment, looking back and then looking forward. Uh, Alexandra, can I start with you? February 2024, can you summarise your thoughts on where we are in the full-scale invasion? This war started not in February 2022, but in February 2014, when Ukraine obtained a chance for the quick democratic transition after the collapse of the authoritarian regime due to revolution of dignity. And in order to stop us on this way, Russia started this war of aggression. Russia occupied Crimea, part of Luhansk and Donetsk regions, and two years ago extended this war to the large-scale invasion. And what Russia did all these years, Russia uses war crimes as the methods of warfare. Russia attempts to break people's resistance and occupy the country by the tool which I call the immense pain on civilian population. And we, as a human rights lawyers, are documenting this pain for all these 10 years. Francis, can I come to you and put that, what Alexandra's remarks, in a greater geopolitical context for us? Yes, well, I think two years into the full-scale invasion, we're still at the situation where it's being measured in terms of manpower, materiel, and morale. And the debate always was which side would blink first, whether when measured by those metrics, it would be Russia or whether it would be the West, including Ukraine. The anxiety at the moment is that it is the West that looks more inclined to blink first. And I don't mean Ukraine. Ukraine is still committed to its vision of absolute victory. You look at other countries in the alliance and they are, 
I think, starting to get quite nervous about the direction of travel. And there is some open talk about negotiations, despite the fact that negotiations would be disastrous, I think, for Ukraine as opposed to Russia, because the obligation with negotiations would be then for countries like, I don't know, Britain, America, to say, whilst negotiations are ongoing, we're not going to give weapons deliveries to Ukraine because we don't want to harm the process. So whilst Russia would be mobilizing, preparing even more soldiers for another assault, Ukraine would have its hands tied and that would be extremely damaging. Then we have, of course, the matter of war crimes, which still have not got, I think, the cut through the wider recognition amongst the political class and populations as a whole, which is also extremely damaging for understanding just the profound significance this war has on the implications for Western security more widely. And I think also as well, something that we need to be reflecting on in the context of the last two years is there is room for optimism in the sense that I don't think the West has completely switched off from the reality of where we are. And I think that if things do get worse, then there will be a panic setting in and a ramping up of support. But the tragedy is, of course, that it will take perhaps potentially more losses for Ukraine on the battlefield before we see that recognition in the West of just how serious things in. I think many countries believe that somehow we are in a stalemate and that these lines are going to remain static. And I don't think that that is an accurate way of thinking about this. But as I say, the optimistic side would be that we've seen uh, just this week alone, the death of Navalny, the defeat for the Ukrainians at Avdika. It's waking up, I think, certain political entities to the reality of quite how stark things are becoming. And that may well be a turning point in how some approach the support for Ukraine in this war. Thank you, Francis and Alexandra. Dom, could you maybe take everything our guests have said and put it into some military context for us. Where are we in the full-scale invasion? Of course, as Alexandra said, 10 years since the invasion and occupation of Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea. But now, where are we? So General Sir Patrick Sanders is the head of the British Army at the moment. He was talking recently about societal resilience and how you have the whole population motivated to defeat a common foe. And he said that throughout history, the general model of war is that a professional army would start it and a civilian army will finish it. And that's where the war in Ukraine is at the moment. The, the professional army that was intact in February 2022 has largely gone. It has been broken, a lot of people killed and wounded. The structures are not as they were. The equipment is nothing like what it was. And there's a civilian army now that is trying to hold the line against Russia and at the same time build itself into a force that can defeat Russia inside Ukraine and, and wider afield. And that takes a huge effort. It's not just a military effort. It's the whole of society and internationally as well. So it takes a huge amount of diplomacy on the international field as well as the, the changes that need to happen inside Ukraine. There's a huge debate in Ukraine at the moment about mobilisation, about whether or not the age of conscription should be lowered from 26, 27 as it is at the moment, down to, say, 22, to get more people into the military and throw them into the fight. Now, at the moment, the government, President Zelensky, has tried to protect that younger generation that will be needed to build the country and keep the economy going after the war. 
But, as was put to me by an official just recently, what do you want to do? Do you want to keep the economy going just to hand it over to the enemy? Because there's this real difficulty at the moment about how you push Russia out of this country. And do you use the young men and women who will have to fight and die to keep the country going? Or do you, as is the case at the moment, use them to keep the economy going? So it's a very difficult place that the country's in at the moment. That's inside the country. Externally, there are questions being asked about does the international community believe in these values and the norms of behaviour that grew out of the ashes of the Second World War enough to invest in Ukraine in terms of money, humanitarian aid and military equipment, training, everything that it takes to build an armed force, not just the military, but the whole of society to defeat Russia. So there are big questions at the moment. There are no obvious answers. There are court grounds for optimism, as Francis says, but there's also, there are very, very real and stark risks that are apparent right now. And I think 2024, I don't think an awful lot will happen on the land. I mean, there's a huge amount going on in the Black Sea and in the air as well and inside Russia, but I don't think we'll see the lines move much inside Ukraine. However, it is a pivotal year for that internal debate to be had inside Ukraine about how you use your limited number of personnel and do you sacrifice the younger generation to win the war and there's also this debate about the international community and their support for Ukraine externally so there's an awful lot at stake this year and at the moment there are few signs of grown-ups stepping up and making decisions. Dom said that does the international community believe in the values they espouse? Alexandra, when it comes to your work looking at war crimes, what's your view on that? Do you think that two years into the full-scale invasion, ten years into the war, that's your view from Ukraine is that maybe the international community doesn't with the impunity that many Russian soldiers have enjoyed committing the acts they have? Before I will speak about impunity and how to deal with this, I will return to the point which my colleagues told. As a human rights lawyer, I have been spending years and years to implement law to defend people and human dignity. But now I found myself in a situation when the law doesn't work. Because Russian troops deliberately shelling residential buildings, schools, churches, hospitals, attacking vacation corridors torturing people in filtration camps, ban Ukrainian language and culture in occupied territories. They are forcibly taking Ukrainian children to Russia. They are abducting, robbing, raping and killing civilians in the occupied territories. And the entire UN architecture of peace and security can't stop it. So as a human rights lawyer, I found myself in a very weird situation. When someone asked me how we can help to protect human rights and freedoms in occupied territories, in Ukraine in general, I have to answer, give Ukraine weapons. And this is not answer which you expected from the human rights lawyer, sorry. It showed that there is a huge problem with the law. And what I want to say in this regard, according to the general assistance, not just about fighting with impunity, when large-scale invasion started, well-developed democracies told, let's help Ukraine not to fail. And Ukraine obtained the first weapons to be able to defend ourselves and first real sanctions against Russia were introduced into force. And we're extremely grateful because it helped us to survive. But 
It's also an explanation why we was waiting for a first modern tank for more than a year, why we had to start counteroffensive without any modern plane. Because there is a huge differences between let's help Ukraine not to fail and let's help Ukraine to win. And we can practically measure these differences in types of weapons, in speed of decisions, in gravity of sanctions. And the problem is, which my colleagues pointed earlier, that while we're discussing, we are using the time. And time for us in Ukraine is, means very different things. Time for us converted in numerous deaths in battlefield, in numerous deaths in deep rear, and numerous deaths in occupied territories. Do you think that the developed democracies, as you say, haven't yet, despite the last two years, despite the last 10 years, haven't yet woken up to the realities of what the Russian state and the Russian armed forces really are? This shift has just started and it's going very slow. We still see that a lot of politicians abroad, they believe they can return to the status quo, to the 23rd of February 2022, but it's not possible. You can't return to the past. You have to accept this reality, even if it's horrible, and do everything which you can in the present to build a future which you want. You said as a human rights lawyer, you find it a weird situation to ask for weapons and you say that's the line the law hasn't worked francis and don would you like to come in on that why do we think that international law the structures that are supposed to help us produce and generate a peaceful world why haven't they worked and maybe it's a symptom or is it a cause what do you think is happening i think we're looking at the reality of a western foreign policy that's been incoherent and complacent for a very very long time at the end of the day, the international rules-based order, that's the term you often hear, is rooted in power and confidence. And those two things have been sorely lacking from a Western perspective for many, many years now. And in that time, autocracies have grown more powerful. I think there are various reasons as to why we've seen that complacency. To some degree, of course, it was the collapse of the Soviet Union not having that great existential threat. But I also think the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan led to a general sense of anxiety and feelings of the West was not as powerful as it believed it was. And all of that combined led us to the state where we are today, which is where we see autocracies emerging from this and thinking, well, maybe our understanding of the West and its great power projection is ill-founded, that it's not going to fight. Clearly, Putin thought if Ukraine fell swiftly, would do very little. And he had every reason to believe that. You only need to look at the weak response to the annexation of Crimea in 2014, the red line that was ignored by President Obama and others in Syria around chemical weapons. It was perfectly rational for him to believe that if he invaded Ukraine, that the West would be weak on that. Now, of course, he misunderestimated the degree of Ukrainian resistance and also the fact that the West could be mobilized from its stupor. But what a tragedy that it's taken this. The question still remains, to your point, is how much longer will it take for the West to wake up? Truly, I still think that its eyes are half open from having gone through this process of a great reawakening. And until they reach the stage where they are willing to say, 
it's not just enough for Ukraine to hold on and to win, but Russia must be defeated, then I think that we are going to remain in this sort of halfway house of giving Ukraine weapons to hold on, but not enough to actually be decisive on the battlefield. It's cruel, really, I think, to a degree, to not have that clarity of purpose and that sense of if we act now and decisively, then victory can be there. And it's taking much, much longer. I think most of us would say now, if the tanks have been permitted, the F-16s, all of those weapons that was such hesitancy was granted over gra- only gradually, then maybe there would have been much, much more progress in the previous year with the counteroffensive, and we wouldn't be in this situation now. Yeah, I think it's very difficult to say what might have happened and look at counterfactuals of if they'd had this, would they have prevailed and would the counteroffensive have worked and so on and so forth. But what I think is absolutely clear is that now the world knows that what this fight is And there can be no excuse for saying, well, we don't need to give Ukraine too many tanks or too many aircraft. It's very clear now what it will take to fight this war. And the lethargy from the international community is stark. And the lack of support, the lack of wholehearted, unequivocal support is very telling. This phrase that will stick with Ukraine for as long as it takes, it it absolutely grips me every time I hear that because it's, as long as it takes to do what you, you need to complete that sentence as, as, as long as it takes to win as long as it takes not to lose it, it's just such mealy mouth words at the moment that sounded good originally nine ten months ago but now it really is well what do you actually want to achieve here the US the EU Britain France the G7 what do you actually want to happen here and you then have to act to make that happen and I'd be very interested to hear Alexander your, Alexander, your view on what it was about the Second World War that meant human rights law came into the fruition that we saw it and we live with it now. And 80 years after the end of the Second World War, so an entire lifetime, we now seem to have grown a bit tired of all that and we can't remember it. There's very little living memory of those times. And whether or not we're just getting lazy and we don't really care that much about human rights and the rule of law and is it going to take another cataclysm to shake the world and say you need to reorder this 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 that worked for 80 years after the second world war but it's not perfect and you need to do something about it and do you think that cataclysm is happening now in ukraine i think yes because we live in very turbulent times and the whole UN system of peace and security is collapsing before our eyes before it was visible that it not effectively defend human rights and human beings against authoritarianism in the war just for some countries and people like people in Sudan, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Myanmar, in Nicaragua, in China. But now it's visible for the whole world because when UN Court of Justice made the intermediate decision and obliged Russian troops to leave the country and Russia ignored the decision of UN Court of Justice. So What we can say in this regard, and the problem is also that it's not just a war between two states, 
This is a war between two systems, authoritarianism and democracy. And with this war, Putin not just wants to punish Ukrainians for our democratic choice, which we made 10 years ago during the Revolution of Dignity. He also attempts to convince the whole world that democracy, rule of law and human rights are fake values because they couldn't protect you during the war. He wants to convince that country with a strong military potential and nuclear weapons can break international order, can dictate its rules to entire international community and even forcibly change internationally recognized borders. And if Russia succeeds and remains unpunished, it will encourage other authoritarian leaders in the world to do the same. And while we are in situation when the UN system is not working properly, it means that even democratic countries will have to invest their money, not in healthcare, education, business development, culture, or solving some global problems like climate change or social inequality, but in weapons. And what we'll see as a result? We'll see the emergence of a number of nuclear states. We'll witness how quickly the new robotic armies will be created and the new weapons of mass destruction. So if Russia succeeds, and this scenario comes true, we'll found ourselves in a world which will be dangerous for everyone, without any exception. Just Don was asking there why the Second World War had this great impact on human rights and our understanding of ethical concerns on that. I think the conventional understanding is it was very simply the horror of that war, that it traumatized an entire global generation and led them to wanting to build this new architecture, just in a sense the First World War had with the foundation of the League of Nations, which of course failed. That's the conventional understanding. I think now they are leading to reassessments that really this is just about power. The West won, in a sense. America was the great victor of the war, and as a result was able to impose an understanding of a new rules-based order on the world, with the world's consent, by and large. And with that consent, a lot was able to be achieved in the decades afterwards. But it took power, decisiveness, confidence and clarity after the horror of the Second World War for the victors to define what world they wanted to build. The ramifications of that for today are where is that clarity now? Where is that confidence now in those values? You look at Western societies and there's a real erasure and uncertainty about what we really stand for. I think. Ukraine knows because it's fighting for it right now. But in the West, if you ask the average person, what does your country stand for? A lot of people would have negative perceptions. And that has, I think, quite profound ramifications. The other ramification, of course, which is very uneasy, but if you look at history, when you're reshaping the moral architecture of an era after a great cataclysm, usually to change countries that have been fascistic, it requires occupation or profound defeat. Look at Nazi Germany, look at Imperial Japan. Those are the only ways that we saw profound change in those countries or from a cultural sense. Now, there is no appetite in the West for there to be an invasion of Russia and occupy Russia. It's just not going to happen. And so how do you facilitate change when the biggest changes are required from history from 
in a sense, decisive military victory. And I suppose you could say in a more optimistic sense, and this is, I think, is the, the approach that the West has been clinging on to and now has lost with Navalny's death, is this idea that if there were some sort of popular revolution, all that's required in a centralized state like Russia is to control Moscow and St. Petersburg, and a democrat, a revolutionary, can control the whole society. That's one of the few advantages of a very, very centralized state, is that when change comes, it can ch change very quickly, shaped by the character of the individual top down. With Navalny gone and no real other figure that can take over that, there's a real dearth of opportunity there. And that is why I think you see so much despair. Uh, let me add something to this. Returning to the Second World War, when it finished, the whole humankind was shocked with the devastating consequences, millions of deaths, destroyed countries, and the decisive action were taken. The UN system were created, the single European project was established, the Nuremberg trials was conducted, and this slogan, never again, it was the main slogan with millions and millions of people in the world commemorate the day of victory. But... When Nazi war criminals were punished for all crimes they have committed, Soviet gulag have never been prosecuted or condemned. And that is why no surprise that Russia commemorate the day of victory with a slogan, we can repeat, because unpunished evil grows. And all this hell which we now face in Ukraine is the result of total impunity which Russia enjoyed for decades, committing horrible war crimes in Chechnya, in Moldova, in Georgia, in Mali, in Syria, in Libya, in other countries of the world. And they have never been punished. Mm. They believe they can do whatever they want. And I always say that I'm working with the construction of Russian culture, because culture is not just masterpieces of art or literature or Russian ballet or beautiful music. Culture is also a patterns which widespread in some society and Russian culture is culture of violence and we see it in our territories. Could I ask you, Alexandra, how do we get to the new Nuremberg trials after this war? How do we get to that point, in your view as a human rights lawyer, where we would have Russian generals or statespeople on the stand in The Hague or in something different, if, in your view, that the rights-based order, the law-based order is breaking down before our eyes. How do you think we get there to bring these people to justice? In order to break the circle of impunity which Russia enjoyed for decades, we have to take decisive action again. And the problem is that we have this mental barrier. We look to the world through the lens of the Nuremberg trials, where Nazi war criminals were tried, but only after Nazi regime had collapsed. But I always say we live in 21st century. It's a new century. We cannot wait. Why we have to put justice into dependence of when and how this war will end? If people committed the crime of aggression, these people have to be accountable, regardless of the results of the war. It's a logic, it's international law. If we want to prevent wars in future, we have to punish states and their leaders who start such a war. And that is why it means that we have to create such special tribunal on aggression now and hold Putin, Lukashenko and top political leadership and high military command of Russian state accountable. And how do we get to that point? I'm interested in the process here. What do Western countries and Ukraine and, and other countries, what do we need to do to get to that point? We have to get their 
political will to do it. Because all legal norms are there, the law obliged to react. This delay is just the lack of bravery and historical responsibility. Since we mentioned Nuremberg, of course, something that's, I think, quite uncomfortable to reflect upon is that given the context of the time and the fears about the Soviet Union, the Allies were willing to basically try and put the blame for the war on the Nazi hierarchy. And there was very little systemic, through the whole of society, of denazification process. There was with a sort of certain group, but it was never throughout the whole of society. And some people now are saying, how do you change a society when you don't have occupation? And we also feel that there are more people that are responsible than just Vladimir Putin and 10 others. Yes, yeah, so there's, there's an uncomfortable question there. And just one other thing, I think um, Alexander's absolutely right to reflect on the lack of understanding and memory of the gulags. So much of our understanding of 20th century history is on the fact that we have the surviving Nazi extermination camps, that we have Auschwitz, we can visit there. It's part of our educational memory collectively in Europe and the wider West. But there is no equivalent of Auschwitz for the gulags. Indeed, they are were really stripped bare. And we have seen, of course, the continual suppression of that in Putin's Russia to try and destroy all traces of commemoration of the devastation. And just to give a flavor of how bad the gulags were, survivors on them called them Auschwitz without the ovens. These were horrific, horrific places, as bad as what Nazi Germany was persecuting. And yet it's just not there in our collective memory. Could we bring this discussion down from this historical just to today and to the work that Alexandra that you've been involved in could you give us a sense of just how difficult it is for human rights lawyers and for war crimes investigators to discover what's going on to be able to gather the evidence against Russian soldiers and politicians could you tell us what what's actually happening in that space and what more help may be needed from the west at this point at this moment i think that this is the most documented war in the human history And from the March 2022, I start to ask to myself, for whom do we document all these crimes for? Because as a lawyer, I understand that we face with accountability gap. First, there is no international court who can prosecute Putin and his surrounding for the crime of aggression. And all these atrocities which we now document in its results of their leadership decision to start this war. And that is why, as I mentioned before, we have to create this special tribunal. But second, we faced with enormous amount of crimes. And this is a huge burden of the national system. We have 120,000 criminal proceedings only on war crimes for these two years. 120,000 proceedings. It's impossible to investigate properly during the war, even for the best national system in the world. And Ukraine is not the best national system in the world. And we can't rely only on international criminal court efforts. Its efforts were essential, but they will limit its investigation only to several selected cases. And my question is still actual. Who will provide a chance for justice for each person affected by this war? And probably the most difficult for us is for human rights lawyers who work directly with victims is 
not to document, but to survive under this horror and pain which we recorded. Let me tell you one story just to describe. Uh, this story is, I haven't documented by myself, but uh, my colleague, he spoke with 10-year-old boy from Mariupol. His name is Ilya Matvienko. And when Russians tried to siege the city, that Russian army and Russian leadership didn't provide permission for international criminal court to evacuate civilians from there. So Ilya and his mother, like other civilians in Mariupol, had to hide, to hide in basement of their residential buildings. And they melted snow to have a water and made a fire to have some food. But when the food ran out, they have to go to find some products and suddenly they appeared in the center of Russian shelling. And the boy's mother was hit in her head and the lack of boy was very injured. And mother, with a last strength, took his son to the friend's apartment. And what happens later? Because prior to this, Russians destroyed maternity hospital in Mariupol and the whole medical infrastructure. They have no medical assistance. So they just lay on a couch for several hours and hug each other. And then this 10-year-old boy told to my colleague that his mom died and frozen in his arms. Can you imagine this horror? This horror of this 10-year-old boy. I believe that this boy and his mother and all other people affected by this war have chance to justice. Regardless who they are, their type of crimes they endured, their social position, and whether or not this story is visible for media or international organizations. Because if we say in 21st century that the life of each person matters, we have to make it our practice. Tom, can I bring you in at this point? We've talked a lot about the depredations and the crimes of the Russian military. When you look back over the past two years, the past 10 years, at these crimes from a military perspective, what's your view on how the Russian army has conducted itself as a professional looking at what's happened? Well, I mean, a lot of people who listen to us and disagree with what we say when we talk about this aspect of the war, I would imagine would take the view, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? So I would ask you not to listen to my words, but to look at the words and the work of Dr. Alice Edwards. She's the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Cruel and Inhuman Treatment. And she is working to document these crimes and to put together an account that will hopefully at some point in the future be used to hold those responsible to account. Now, she's put out her preliminary report that came out late last year, 2023. I think the full report is out in May of this year. But already, and we spoke to her twice on the podcast, and she said that her preliminary investigations had shown that the abuse that has been conducted by the Russian military across the country shows so many similarities in the methodology of the torture and the inhuman treatment of civilians across such a geographic spread and a time over many, many months that it can't be individual bad apples. I mean, unfortunately, human nature is such that there will be bad people in any organisation. The military is no different to that. But Dr Edwards says that what she is seeing 
shows that this level of abuse is systemic. So it is inculcated in the Russian military. And if it's not actively ordered from above, and she's not saying that yet, she can't find evidence. She's, she won't be able to say that so-and-so issued an order on this day to go and commit torture. That's unlikely to exist. But the system of the Russian military allows these abuses to happen, encourages them, if you like, because they see it as a weapon of war. They don't see um, rape, for example. There's been lots of evidence from Russian society that women, partners of men fighting in Ukraine, Russian soldiers in Ukraine, do not see their partners' husbands raping Ukrainian women as a crime. And they don't see it as being in any way unfaithful to their relationship because they don't view Ukrainian women as equal. So th this system has allowed this to happen and encourages it. And Dr. Edwards has put together this body of work, the full report out in May. Now, she is realistic about what will come of that. And she doesn't expect a huge amount. She's put her initial findings to the Russian government and the last time we spoke to her just before Christmas had no response now does that mean that her work is worthless pointless uh, no absolutely not it has to happen at some point in the future we can only hope that there is a system of accountability and I do remember I've said many times one of my former commanding officers said if the word hope enters your plan you haven't planned enough but we should hope that in the future there is a system whereby the work of the UN Special Rapporteur on torture and the evidence that she has uncovered and the analysis that she has provided is able to hold some people to account for what they've done and the system that they have built that allows this to happen. Dom spoke there, <clears throat> Alexandra and um, Francis have spoken at length today about the abuses, the crimes, the rapes, the murders the war crimes. Alexandra, two link questions, I think. Do you think we're looking at a genocide? And do you think that term is useful in this context? This war has a genocidical character, no doubt in it. Just recently, Putin conducted this public interview to Tucker Carson, and he openly repeated genocidical claims, which is a crime according the UN Convention Against the Genocide. He said that there is no Ukrainian nation that we the same people as Russians. And we then later documented how these words converted into horrible practice on the ground. Because when Russian troops occupied the region, they started deliberate extermination of active local people there. Volunteers, journalists, priests, artists, children writers, musician conductors, mayors, local self-government, like any active people in community. They ban Ukrainian language and culture. They forcibly taken Ukrainian children to Russia to bring them up as Russians. And they militarize the system of education. And in schools, the Ukrainian children has to start the morning with a singing Russian song. So what I want to say the term of genocide has elaborated very modest, let's say like this, in UN Convention Against Genocide. But there is no necessity to be a lawyer to understand if you want deliberately 
exterminate some national group, totally or partially. There is no necessity for you to kill all representatives. You can forcibly change their identity and the entire international group will disappear. And that is why this slogan of Vladimir Putin is interpreted in a very clear way. Ukrainians, you have to be re-educated as Russians or killed. Please decide. Mentioned to Tucker Carlson there, and I know I've made this point before, but I think it, it bears repeating given its importance. When Carlson went into that interview, it was evident that he was trying to point Putin in the direction of saying that the full-scale invasion was a response to NATO encroachment. Instead, to your point, Putin rattled off his pseudo-history, an analysis of why Ukraine belonged to Russia. That should have been an enormous wake-up call to the reality of how Putin sees this war and why it has, to your point, a genocidal character. But there remains still this bloke, blinkered approach, I think, from many in the West that still thinks that this is not in any way an ideological war, that this is just a purely rational war, a sort of realpolitik in practice of Putin trying to reassert himself at home and reassert himself on the geopolitical stage without understanding that there is this ideological element to it, which was evident really for a very, very long time. Putin has been talking about not recognizing Ukraine as a state for many, many years. The annexation of Crimea, of course, the essay that he wrote before the full-scale invasion, which many people dismissed as just being, again, him trying to in some way manipulate international opinion. There needs to be a recognition of just how serious the ramifications of this philosophy of war are for the international rules-based order that we claim to want to defend. Let me share my fear. As a lawyer, I know that genocide is a crime of crime. And this means that you have to present a high, high evidence to reach these high standards to prove it in international court. But my fear is that while we are discussing whether or not we can call this war genocide, we forget about one important point that genocide in Rwanda also not started suddenly. There were a long period with a dangerous sign, which alarming that it will, inaction will lead to genocide. And my fear is that if we will not take decisive actions, we can reach the point when even the severe skeptics will have no doubt that this is a genocide. Alexandra, lots of people will be watching this, hearing what you're saying and be being, like us, hugely moved. What do you need from them? What kind of actions can they take to help you and your colleagues do your job better? I'm a human rights lawyer. I'm not politicians. I'm not diplomats. So I will use this opportunity to apply the ordinary people because I know from my own experience when you can't rely on the legal instrument or the responsible politicians, you can always rely on people because ordinary people have a much greater impact than they can even imagine. And we as Ukrainians proved that two years ago when the world was confident that we have no potential to resist to such enormous opposing power as Russia is that ordinary people who fight for their freedom and human dignity can change the history and stronger than even the second army in the world. So my apply and my call is 
politicians, they like always pretend not to solve global problems with some temptation and illusion that this problem will vanish. But the truth is that problem will not vanish. Problem become more and more stronger. So we need your voice. We need your help. We need the action of ordinary people in different countries of the world. We are fighting for freedom, which have no limitation in national borders. And when Russia created the whole authoritarian bloc to help them to kill Ukrainians and occupy the country, like North Korea provided Russia with more one million artillery shelled. China helped Russia to bypass the sanctions. Syria voted for Russian General Assembly of UN. Iran provided Russia with Iranian drones, which means that we people who believe in democracy and freedom have to help each other even stronger. And we need your voice. In this crucial moment, we need your voice to change the history once again. Have your conversations with people over the past two years and before changed? Have you found it more difficult to convince people? Have you had to change your arguments or your examples? I'm interested because I think one of the problems when we talk about, I mean, it's a horrible phrase, but people have used it, so I'll use it just to try and explain this. But people talk about Ukraine fatigue, that they don't want to see the news from the wall, that they don't want to follow what's going on because sometimes it's too depressing and too sad. What arguments, what ways of explaining have you found to get through to people who do not want to listen? I don't think that is fatigue. When we speak about people in Ukraine, fatigue is a luxury. If you stop fighting in this genocidal war, there will be no more us, so we have no choice. And how people can be tired of Russia's war against Ukraine, being in Berlin, in Geneva, in Paris, in other peaceful cities. So it's not fatigue, it's something else. And the truth is that if Putin will not be able to stop in Ukraine, to be stopped in Ukraine, he will go further. Because Russia is empire, and empire has a center and has no borders. And when empire has energy, empire will always expand it. So this is not just our war. And war not just have military dimensions, but other dimensions as well. And when a describe what's going on in Ukraine to different people. I see the understanding. Even if we speak with people who far from of Ukraine in some countries of Africa or countries of Latin America and have no idea about our culture, about our history, because first and foremost, we are human beings. And I said recently that freedom has no borders, but there are a lot of other things which has no borders and pain has no borders as well. And when I describe the pain of mother who lost her just born child because Russians deliberately hit maternity hospital in Zaporizhia, this pain is understandable for each people, regardless their ideology, political views, ethnicity, citizenship, religion, color of skin other criteria. Dom mentioned hope earlier. Where do you find the hope in this? Where do you look for? I know that all our efforts have sense. I was brought up by Soviet dissidents 
When I was a child in school, I got acquaintance with a famous Ukrainian philosopher, writer, and former political prisoners of Soviet Gulag, uh, Yevhen Sverstyuk, and he started to take care about me. And he ingrained me in the circle of people who was brave enough to stood up their voice against the whole totalitarian Soviet machine, who say what they think and do what they say, who has no other tools to change reality, but only their own words and their own position. And suddenly it become obvious that it's not so little. And when we look to the Soviet dissident in Soviet Union about the period of 16th from the short-term perspective, we can see them that they're losers because they were jailed, they were subjected to psychological treatment, forcible psychological treatment, I must emphasize. Part of them were killed, their career were ruined, their families were separated. But from the long-term perspective, they're winners because we have the collapse of Soviet Union and the possibility to restore our independence at the country only because they was fighting in the 60s. So all efforts have sense. It feels like we're at an inflection point in history. Francis, would you like to talk about that a little bit? Everything we've said feels like there are sort of several paths in the future, mm-hmm. and really it's down to people's will and a commitment of which one we will end up going down. As a historian, how do you see this? I think it's important to that point. I think Putin's already lost this war, and I mean that in the sense of... He had a clear objective that was to take Ukraine in a matter of days or weeks and to decimate the political class and probably install some kind of puppet government military regime. He's failed in that. And it is just worth remembering that given where we were two years ago. I also think it would be impossible, even in the worst case scenarios, for Putin to be able to control this country. It has been appalled and for all of the reasons we've talked about in the last hour, appalled by what has taken place by Russian soldiers. It is impossible for that relationship to ever be repaired, I think, in the way that Putin would like to see it. If he were to occupy this country, it would be impossible to control. And so these are all signs of Putin's failure. The danger is, to your point about this being an inflection point, that if this is allowed to go on, it is already sending very, very dangerous ripple effects around the world. I think the Israel-Gaza is connected to this. The destabilization of Africa is connected to this. China is looking and in the context of Taiwan. I would say to people in countries that feel unaffected by this war that you are affected, you are implicated, not just because of the changing moral architecture in terms of the world that we are allowing to be perpetrated every day as long as these war crimes continue, but also that if autocracies become more strong, more powerful, more, much stronger, then it has ramifications for all of us. It may be in five years, it might be in 10 years, but it will be when historians look back and say that was the moment where things could have been stopped. Just like people look at Nazi Germany and say 1935 was the key year where it would have been possible to stop what became the Second World War. So it is absolutely a critical moment for all of us. And I think that particularly to viewers and listeners in America, I would say that, yes, you have the luxury of being separate from Europe. You can do what you like. You can be isolationist. But America is a symbol of freedom. 
And as long as people are fighting for freedom then, and there are enemies of freedom, then you yourself will become a target. And that has been the case throughout the 20th century and it will be the case again. Before we go to our final thoughts then, Alexandra, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important? I think that it's important to say that we are in a crucial moment of history, but we have a chance. And this is a huge luxury to have a chance. The future is unclear and unguaranteed, but we have a chance to fight for future, which we want for us and for our children. Well, thank you so much for all of your contributions. It's been fascinating and hugely moving. And thank you, Alexandra, for sharing your experiences and thoughts. Let's go to our final thoughts then to finish this live recording of Ukraine, the latest in Kiev, on the anniversary of the start of the full-scale invasion. Dom Nichols, would you like to start? Yeah, I think we've spoken at length about how this year is an inflection point in the war and in history for the reasons we've discussed. And I think we are still going down. And I think there's a, an element of chaos coming. We are living it at the moment. I think there's more to come. And we need to get through that area, that very dangerous area, as quickly as possible and build something on the other side. Because if we just allow the world system to fracture and this idea that might is right to take hold once again, then it is a very, very dark period in history. So I think the situation will get worse globally before it gets better. But we really do need ideas now and start to build the framework for what comes next. And I don't know what that is, but just as those visionaries in 1945 and through, through the Second World War built, talked about, discussed and came up with the system, as flawed as it is, of the United Nations and human rights law, but we need something now and we need these discussions to be happening now. We need these ideas now because if chaos takes a grip, then this could be a very, very dangerous time for world history. Thank you so much, Dom. Francis Stanley. There's a lot of pessimism around at the moment. One can feel it in the air here being in Kiev for totally understandable reasons. But I think we are being more optimistic. We're at a changing of the guard. The generation that led us to this point through their complacency is on the way out over the last 20 years. And you look at that new generation of leaders in Europe who are perhaps 10, 20 years younger, I think you do see a fire. There is a crisis of leadership at the moment, but I think that there is an understanding that there needs to be much more firmness and strength in the collective West. And that's one reason to be, optimism, to be optimistic. Another reason to be optimistic is to the point we've repeated again and again. This is still in our hands. History is not pre-written. We're not on a predetermined path here towards a certain fate. We should grasp that. We should remember how much has happened in the last two years that have shown that all of those experts who thought that this would be a very, very brief war, a devastating war from the West perspective that would be over in a matter of days and it would be the biggest disaster the West had faced. Ukraine, through its heroism and the bloodshed that it is being willing to shed for Europe and for the West, has held on and has given us the opportunity to fight and to support them and for a brighter future. And it's vital that we remember that and don't just resign ourselves to a pessimistic future. There is so much opportunity that we get gained from this. And if we get things right, 
then we would be creating, to Dom's point, a much, much brighter future than the one we are inhabiting now and maybe inhabited even for generations prior to that. Thank you, Francis. And Dom, Alexandra, would you like the very final words? I also don't know how historian of future will call this period because we live in very turbulent times. But I know that these times provide us opportunity to express the best in us, to be courageous, to fight for freedom, to make a difficult but right choices and to help each other. Because while we are helping each other, fighting for freedom and for human dignity, this is something which provides us this feeling that we are human beings. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Dom. Thank you to all the crew and everybody at The Telegraph and here in Ukraine who've helped us so much. And of course, a thank you to all the people we've interviewed who give us their time and share their experiences, no matter how painful. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to speak to you, Alexandra, and to come here with Francis and Dom. Thank you very much for listening and let us know what you're thinking two years on from the full-scale invasion, ten years on from the start of the war. Thank you, Francis, Alexandra. Thank you, Dom. It's been a very moving hour. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter. And the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.